right now we're going to uh, talk about the, the life of, of King Saul, who's the, the villain uh, in the story of King David, um, or, or is he, right, is going to be kind of the point of our, uh, our discussion. And we're going to go through that just over the next few, uh, next three or four weeks and talk about his life, what it means, uh, and who he was, what it means for us. Let me start off by telling you the story. Uh, it's a, a, a little parable I made up about two different kings. Um, king A, uh, he did not want to be a king, uh, but his people came to him, uh, and despite what he wanted, they made him a king. Uh, and when he became a king, he tried his very best, he tried his hardest. Uh, he defeated the traditional enemies of his people, uh, he, some of them. Uh, he fought some of them to a standstill. Uh, but he did his very, 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 very best. All that he could. Uh, eventually, he had a rival who he thought wanted to take his throne. Uh, and... So he, he tried to have that person killed, right? That person uh, eventually fled uh, to another country and enlisted in the army of the enemies of King A's people, right? Proved him right. Uh, he married King A's daughter uh, and then abandoned her. Uh, so, right, King A did everything he could. Eventually, uh, he, um, he was undone because he sacrificed cattle that were to have been killed. And he, uh, they were to be killed immediately and he held them for his men and then he, he did a sacrifice to God with them. Uh, and then he uh, performed a sacrifice too early. That's what he did wrong. Let's talk about King B. Uh, King B is over here, uh, and King B, uh, as a young man, lived for years as a mercenary, and he fought on behalf of the enemies of his own people for years and years and years and years. Uh, he became king. Uh, he had a disputed claim, but he became king eventually, united all of his people under him. Uh, he abandoned his first wife, and because he was king, he ordered her to marry another man who she did not want to marry. Uh, he raped a woman and then killed her husband to hide it. Not only did he kill her husband, in order to hide it effectively, he killed uh, dozens of men that were with her husband during a time of war. He allowed his daughter to be raped by her half-brother uh, without punishment from him. I, I could go on, but I won't. Uh, the Bible calls one of these men a man after God's own heart. Do you think it was A or B? B. It was B. Right? That's David. I, I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to beat you over the head. Right? I said this would be a slow build-up. But... Um, and I, I say, I start out with this parable um, because I think that we often, when we're reading First, uh, Second Samuel, we get the idea that this is David's story and David's the hero uh, and Saul's just the villain. 
and he must be a bad guy because David displaces him. David is not a man after God's own heart because of David's moral perfection. He's not. David, um, right, uh, David is a favorite character of many of our, uh, many people here, right? Because you, when you go into Sunday school and they have the flannel graph, right? And they have the big thing of Goliath and they have little David. Right? It's, it's a story that appeals to everybody. Uh, Saul was probably a manic depressive <laughs> and right, like that's how we would think of him. And he was probably um, mentally ill in some way towards the, 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 the end of his life. He's not a very appealing character. But if we study his life, we can learn a lot. Um, and I, the, the one thing that I would say before we even start is um, take that lesson away, right? Your moral perfection is not what makes God love you. The fact that you are good is not what makes God love you. As we study David and Saul, because of necessity when we study Saul, we're going to be studying David as well, you're going to see a, a difference in their approach to God, a difference in the way, not in the way they act necessarily, right? Um, Saul, didn't, Saul doesn't assault anyone. He doesn't treat his family uh, like, uh, uh, you know, like garbage. Uh, David does, um, but David has an approach to God that says, God, you get to set the rules. And if I do something wrong, right, when David sins, he realizes what he's done. He's contrite. Saul wants to impose, and this is a theme that we're going to talk about. Saul wants to impose his idea of what God should want on God. Right? He, he wants to worship God, but he wants God in a, in a little box that it does kind of what he wants God to do. Uh, and I think often we're that way, right? Um, I, I would... Uh, it, sometimes it is hard, right, to, to, uh, to do the things that God wants you to do. Sometimes it's difficult, and you'd rather, you'd rather he wanted the things that you want. Sometimes it turns out uh, uh, that the God you're worshiping is just a, a, a extended version of yourself, oftentimes. So let's go ahead and dive in. I actually want you to turn... Uh, Richard, did you... I, I know I sent you that outline very late. Did you happen to have it at all? Maybe? Okay. Richard does. So uh, let's talk really quickly uh, about kingship in Israel um, because I, I think often we have this idea that um, we'll read the story uh, either tonight or, or next week about how Saul is crowned king. Uh, and when you when we do that, you'll see uh, everybody is, uh, they, the elders come to Samuel, who's the last judge, and they say, hey, we, we want a king like the other nations have. We want, we want somebody to lead us, like, like, uh, like a king from these other nations. And Saul um, doesn't act surprised, but he's like, well, this is, this is an innovation. This is something new. Uh, and it's, it's really not. Kingship was part of the picture from the very beginning. If we go back to Deuteronomy, which is the, the it contains uh, the covenant between God and Israel, right? And we call it the Mosaic covenant, right? Because Moses is the leader of Israel at that time. We see that there's, there's already in the air or in this, in this uh, covenant document, the idea of kingship. It's already contained there. 
So let's go to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14. And it says, When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me. Thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. So, rule number one, look for a guy that God chooses, right? Don't just, don't just set up anybody as king. Um, one from among thy brethren shalt thou set over king over thee, uh, shalt thou set king over thee. So, rule number two, he has to be from the covenant community, right? He has to, has to be an Israelite. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. Don't go somewhere else and get somebody to be your king. But he shall not, these are the rules for the king, very important, but he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. Uh, why, why would you not, why does God care if he, if the king has more horses. Anybody? What, what, a, a, what do horses draw in this, in this world, this, this time? Yeah, somebody said chariots. Yeah, chariots. Right, a chariot is like the A1 Abrams tank of, of, ancient, of the ancient Near East. What he's saying is, don't start depending on your own strength. Right, don't, don't go out and... like. Don't go out and buy a bunch of AK-47s and, uh, you know, uh, big husky dudes to carry them. Don't, don't do that. That's the equivalent of don't depend on your own strength. Don't multiply horses. Number two, neither shall he multiply wives to himself that his heart turn, uh, turn not away. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. So, right, we've talked about military might. The The reason a king gets married, king's not like a normal person, right? A king doesn't get married because he loves somebody. He, he may love the person he marries in time, possibly, but that's not the primary motivation for a king to get married. The primary motivation for a king to get married is to make alliances with other nations, right? To, to bring somebody, to, to say to another king uh, or an important person in his own nation, I'm going to marry your daughter and that will strengthen the alliance that we have. Number three, uh, neither shall he greatly multi- or four, neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. So we have uh, military might, uh, political alliances, and now we have economics. Don't, don't multiply gold and silver so that you're rich. Don't do that. Why? All of these things are about depending on yourself, right? Depending on things that you got. Uh, you know, I, I have all these wives, so I have all these political alliances, and I got the best horses, uh, and I've got, uh, I've got all this silver and gold that I can spend on whatever I want to improve my nation. God says, Don't, that's not your job as king of Israel. Now, if you were, if you were a, a non-Israelite reading this document, you would, you would say, well, well, what's a king for? Like, what's the purpose of a king? If, if they're not, these are the three things that kings do, right? They increase the economic wealth of the nation, they make the nation safe militarily, and they make political alliances with other nations so that we don't have to worry about them coming in here and cleaning our clock. That, that's what they do. So what, what's, the, what's this king going to do if he doesn't do the three things that kings do? 
Well, verse 19 answers, and it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom that he shall write him a copy of the law in a book uh, out of that which is before the priests, the Levites, and it shall be with him and he shall read therein all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of, of this law and these statutes, to do them, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the end, that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children, in the midst of Israel. So the king's not gonna, he's not gonna get, uh, not gonna be a military power, an economic power, or a political power. He is going to have a copy of the Torah. He's going to copy it. And he's gonna read it every day. Those are the three days of the Israelite king. Uh, again, if, if you were somebody, uh, somebody from another nation in the ancient Near East, you would read this and go, why would, why would he do any of that? The reason is because in God's scheme for this covenant, the king comes along and he's like, um, he is like the live element in a circuit, right? Picture the covenant as like an electrical, it's, it's like an electrical circuit. And you snap in the king and he supercharges it, right? He, he's gonna show the people how to obey the covenant. He's gonna do it by example. He's gonna do it by knowing it like the back of his hand. He's gonna do it by practicing it. And when they see him, they'll follow him in covenant obedience. That's the idea. Um, okay, so that, that's, my, that's the first part. I, I told you this is gonna take a while to get there. We won't, we won't get all the way there this week, but I'm laying the groundwork for, um, for us to really, really understand the life of Saul as the first king of Israel. So point number three, Richard, is... Okay, so you say, we're going to read about Saul. What was happening before Saul that makes Saul necessary? Why do they want a king? Well, let's turn to Judges 2. Uh, those of you who have been in my class know that Judges is my favorite book of the Bible. Uh, and it's, uh, it is a nasty, depressing mess of a book. Um, so I don't, know why it's, I, I don't know why it's my favorite, but it is. It's, it's very easy to teach because uh, it's, and it's very relevant today. Um, for reasons I'll get into in a moment. And it, um, it, it's the first time, reading Judges is the first time, uh, when I was reading Judges as like a 26, 27 year old Christian, uh, really newly saved after a life in church uh, and never having read my Bible all that much, um, it's the first time I can remember seeing the hand of the author, right, um, making a point. Right, or the, I, and I'll, I'll tell you what I mean in a moment, but um, let's go to chapter two and verse uh, nine. No, 10 of uh, Judges, so Judges two, nine. 10, sorry, Judges two, 10. And also, uh, so it says Joshua died in the preceding verses and they buried him. And then it says, and also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers and there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. Balaam is the plural of Baal or Baal. Um, that's their little statues uh, or little gods that are associated with different regions. So uh, if 
you go to Groveport, they might have they might have their own little statue. And you go up Plain City where I live, and they got another one. He's he's the little god of Plain City, but they're all Baal or Lord. And so they start worshiping these idols and creating them and and uh, honoring these other gods. It says, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods of the gods of the people that were round about them and bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. Ashtaroth in Canaanite mythology is the wife of Baal. So worship both of them. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel and he delivered them into the hands of spoilers that spoiled them. And not, not like grandparents spoil uh, people. Like they, they came and stole all their stuff. Um, and, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies round about so that they could not any longer stand before their enemies. Whithersoever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn unto them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord, the Lord raised up judges, which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. And yet they would not hearken unto their judges, but they went a whoring after other gods and bowed themselves unto them. They turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord, for they did not so. And when the Lord raised them up judges, then the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For it repented the Lord because of their groanings by reason of them that oppressed them and vexed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and to bow down unto them. They ceased not from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he said, because that this people hath transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and have not hearkened unto my voice, I also will not henceforth drive out uh, any from before them of the nations which Joshua left when he died. Uh, And I'll stop there, but... Right. If you read that passage I just read, you really don't need to read the rest of Judges because what he described, right, they turn away from God, they, uh, they get real sad because they're oppressed by, the, by their enemies, they cry out to God, God sends a judge who delivers them, and then they do it all over again. That happens like 20 times. So, like you could just read that passage and that's like a summary of the whole book it happens again and again and again and again and every time uh it's subtle but every time sometimes it's subtle sometimes it's not every time the judge gets worse right the judge we start out with Othniel who's like a you know there's not really anything wrong with him uh and we end up with Samson who's like a violent sex addict uh, and it, right, it just, just the, the, you can watch the whole thing going down the toilet as you, as you read this. Um, the whole enterprise of Israel as a nation is just a, a hot mess by the end of this book. Um, and in fact, it ends with, with two, uh, two stories, and we're not going to read them. Uh, one, because they're, uh, they're like R-rated, uh, and I'd be embarrassed to teach them. And I've taught them in here before, so maybe I wouldn't be embarrassed. But um, it's a Wednesday night. We're not going to... Anyway. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, uh, it ends with these two episodes. Uh, and the very last one is uh, the story of how um, this outrage in a, t- in a little town called Gibeah, where uh, a, a 
a man's uh, wife or concubine goes there and he goes to retrieve her uh, and he's assaulted and attacked uh, and he basically shoves her out the door uh, and uh, she's assaulted by these guys and killed. Uh, and then he, not knowing what to do, he cuts her into 12 pieces and sends one piece to all the tribes of Israel as a mark of like what was done to him. It's just, it's this weird, weird story. Uh, and the point, of course, is look, look what happens. Look what happens when people are left to their own devices. Look what, people, well, look what happens when people get to make their own rules. Um, and, and in this instance, no judge is coming, right? That's, that's the, uh, the message of Judges 19 and 20 is this is a big problem, but there's no judge coming to help them anymore. Uh, and it ends with these words that the book of Judges does. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Right? Every, man, every man was a king. You could decide what you wanted to do all on your own. Uh, and it, it, um, So we have a picture of a nation that is they're falling apart as a people, right? And the, the story of Judges is about how the Israelites are becoming the Canaanites that they displaced, right? That they're turning into them. Uh, just, it's, it's um, depressing and sad. It's also my favorite book, like I said. Uh, <laughs> the reason it's my favorite book is you can, because you, you can see what the author is saying, right? The author is saying, we need a king. We gotta get king. And a king that looks like the king that's described in Deuteronomy. Somebody who can lead the people in covenant observance. If we don't get that, this whole thing is just going to fray apart at the edges and then, and then dissolve. Uh, so that, that's the scenario that we're coming into when we get to Saul. Um, so let's turn to 1 Samuel 7. Samuel uh, is the last judge of Israel. Uh, and he's a good one, right? He is called uh, in uh, the first six chapters uh, of, of 1 Samuel uh, to be a judge. And we, if, if we were going to read those chapters, you would see that he is portrayed as um, a- almost a perfect man in, in a lot of ways. He's certainly the perfect judge um, or tribal leader. He is... Um, He's upright, he prays for the people, he ministers to them, he, um, he uh, tries to leave a legacy by training his sons. They turn out to be chumps, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, and he, he defeats the Philistines uh, at least once. So we've got this picture of him, at, like it's finally working, kind of, right, is, is the idea. Um, and if we go to... Chapter 7, verse 15 says, And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went from year to year in circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah and judged Israel in all those places. And his return was to Ramah, which is where he's from. For there was his house, and there he judged Israel, and there he built an altar unto the Lord. So if we were to trace that out, um, in Judges, if we were to go read the whole thing, uh, which I, you should do if you get the time, uh, you would see that each judge is designated as being from a place, 
right? And the place they judge is just their little area, usually, right? Like, they're not traveling around judging in a variety of places. It's like they've got their family group and their extended tribe, and that's kind of who they're representing. Um, Samuel goes from one place to another. If we took a map of Israel, you would see he's, he's riding like a circuit judge from place to place, and he is uh, judging the people. Uh, he's providing his services at all, uh, to all of Israel. It's the first time that that really happens. Um, and so we've got a, a really nice picture of him here as a, um, uh, as a, like a, a, a powerfully godly man who is doing what he's supposed to be doing. Let's go to uh, the first, first verse of the next chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. And it came to pass, when Samuel was old, that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the time of his firstborn, no, I'm sorry. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abiah. They were judges in Beersheba. And his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre. Lucre is uh, money. When I, uh, I saw so I'm a lawyer, if, for those of you who have not met me, um, and uh, when you swear, you have to go to the, y'all get sworn in at the same time if you pass the bar, uh, and you have to take an oath that you will accept no filthy lucre. Uh, I was always like, what's that even mean? And then I, so I went and looked it up. It just means money, it means a bribe. So I, and I have not taken any filthy lucre, so... Uh, or clean lucre, or any kind of lucre. Uh, where was I at? Sorry. And took bribes and perverted judgment. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old. That's a good way to get started. And thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. Uh, they're not, they don't come to him and say, can you give us a king like the king who's described in the law of Moses? Can you give us a king who, who will obey the Torah and show us how to do it? They say, no, we want a king that's like the king that all the other nations have. We want a king who will get horses and wives and gold. That's what we want. We want a king like all the other nations. Um, according to all, and anybody know who Ed Koch is? Remember him? The governor of, or he was the mayor of New York for a period of time. Anybody? When, uh, when, he, was, when he lost his election uh, he, he, I forget, I don't know how many terms a mayor of New York gets, but he lost. Uh, and he said, uh, they asked him how he felt, and he said, the people have spoken. Now let them get what they voted for, good and hard. Uh, so <laughs> so uh, that, that's kind of what God is saying here, right? Is uh, the people have spoken. Let, let, let them have what they want. Uh, so... According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even unto this day, wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods, so do they also unto thee. Uh, right? He's like, we're in the same boat, Samuel. They re they're rejecting me too. 
Now therefore hearken unto their voice, howbeit yet protest solemnly unto them, and show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. And Samuel told all the people uh, of the Lord unto, the, or told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of him a king. And he said, "This will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots, and to be his horsemen. And some shall run before his chariots. And he will appoint him captains over thousands and captains over fifties, and will set them." To ear his to ear his ground, like to listen to to listen to be scouts, and to reap his harvest, and to make his instruments of war and instruments of his chariots, and he will take your daughters to be confectionaries, and to be cooks, and to be bakers, and he will take your fields and your vineyards and your oliveyards, olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants, and he will take the tenth of your seed and of your vineyard. And give to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your men servants and your maid servants and your goodliest young men and your asses, put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your sheep, and ye shall be his servants. And ye shall cry out in that day because of your king, which ye shall have chosen you, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, Nay, but we will have a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people and he rehearsed them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, hearken unto their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said unto the men of Israel, go ye every man unto his city. Wait for further instructions. Go back to where you came from. So we have here, it's kind of a tragic story, right? Um, We have, they, like, God and Samuel are both very upfront with them about what they're going to get, right? It'd be like going to a um, to a uh, uh, an auto an auto dealer and saying, "I want to buy that car," and he says, "Well, you know, it's it's really rusted out on the inside." Um, the guy who brought it in here, I bought it from. I felt sorry for him. It was smoking. The engine was smoking when he brought it in. Um, the tires are flat, and you're like, "I want that car, that specific car. I'll pay any money for it." Um, they know they're getting, right? He's not, not cagey and saying, hey, you're probably getting a good bargain. He says, this is, is going to be a real bad deal for you. And they, they say, well, we'll take it anyway. That doesn't say a lot about their brightness. Um, in, in any event, um, so that's, that's where I'm going to leave off. I did want to, I'm going to take the last five minutes here and talk about my point four. We're not going to go to a lot of... Um, so see and take versus listen and believe. We're not going to talk a lot about this, but I will show it to you as we go along. One of the themes that you're going to see when Samuel meets Saul is that seeing, right? In fact, Samuel's not called a prophet uh, in this, the, the passages that follow. He's called the seer, which is, that, means, that means what it sounds like. He's a seer. Right? He can see things. Um, and there, there is this theme in the Old Testament and trust me, once you know this, when you start reading through the Old Testament, you will see it everywhere. There's a distinction that's made between seeing and taking and listening and believing. So if you it, like, go all the way back to the page one, which you ought to do from time to time, it says that Eve, what? The fruit. Saw it, right? She saw it, that it was good for food, and she took it. Right. And I, I, the, I can't possibly go through all the instances where 
somebody who's up to no good or somebody who's going to be in trouble shortly sees something and takes it. But when you read about Abraham or Noah or any of the kind of of positive uh, figures, they listen and believe, right? It says uh, Abraham listened and believed and it was counted to him to righteousness, right? It it represented righteousness. Um, Even though he wasn't a righteous man, it it, it made him righteous in God's eyes that he, he listened and then he believed. And you're going to see that pattern repeated over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament. In fact, you should go back to page one and write, listen and, be- listen and believe or see and take. Because it, it happens every single time. Um, we're going to see that in this story. And it's important because when Samuel... Uh, selects Saul he selects him based on what he sees who anybody know what Saul's only qualification for for kingship was yeah he he was the tallest one that's how they picked him or that that's how that's how uh, uh, Saul picked him he's he's the tallest one um what a bad way to pick a king, right? Like, like there should be a test or a course or something. Like make, him, make, him, make them fight each other. I don't know. Um, but that, that's the criteria that he uses. And you're going to see it. It's tied up with this idea of seeing. 